Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast to talk about book two, chapter 20 of War and Peace. How do you think Dolokhov's actions will be relayed by his superiors? Do you think he will be called a hero for his actions? Any thoughts about how the different characters, Tushin, Prince Andrew, are responding to the heat of the battle? Ripster 66 says, I have no idea how Dolokhov's superiors will view his actions, but I find it interesting that he feels compelled to tell them about it. It's like being brave and fighting well don't mean anything unless others know about it. It's still about image and seeking advancement. I found his approach kind of cringy, and I wonder if his superiors will see it that way or not. I loved all the different reactions to battle from crazed lust for it, Tushin, to cowardice, to calm logical action, Prince Andre. Part of the chaos of battle comes from the uncertainty of how individuals or whole regiments will react to the heat of the moment. Tushin's crazed firing helped change the approach of the French. No one could have really predicted that from the way things were supposed to go. Also, Tushin's emotions at the end of the chapter really got to me. For hours he's been commanding the cannons, truly in the grips of a form of madness. Prince Andre comes along and not only passes along the command to retreat, he stays behind and escorts him out. I feel like this act brings Tushin back from the brink of madness and connects him to humanity again, I might be reading too much into it, but that was the response I had to the conclusion of the chapter. Um, I think you're pretty much spot on. He was pushing his luck for every minute that he stayed there longer, and it's it's amazing how successful they were with how overwhelmed they should have been. Um, I love the line where it's like the French, the only reason the French didn't overpower them is because they just assumed that they must have backup there's just four cannons there shooting wildly the french were like well they wouldn't just have four cannons un like they wouldn't still be there if they were unprotected if they weren't backed up so they never got them but in actual fact they weren't defended and um (laughs) they were very vulnerable that whole time um Zukov 17 has a summary it's total pandemonium while Rostov's unit is getting crushed in the midst of all it however the small unit of snipers in the bushes where Rostov fled to went on a maniacal offensive getting giving the Russians some breathing room Captain Tushin's group is also continuing to do well they are losing men but they're locked in and really enjoying the battle Andre rides up to tell Tushin that he was supposed to retreat this lost messenger from last chapter and Andre sticks around with Tushin to close out their bit of the fight there's a great contrasting viewpoint, says Zukov 17, of battle between Tushin and Andre at the end of chapter 20. Tushin is obsessed with war and is bravely fighting in what will eventually be sure death, but Andre sees the insanity of the entire thing. It's an awesome moment of representing both sides of the human condition from Tolstoy. I'm becoming increasingly interested in trying to understand this novel from the viewpoint of someone reading in the 1860s. It's a perspective that's so foreign to me, I'm afraid that these war scenes are just passing by. Tolstoy is doing a great job of providing all the perspectives, but I don't have a strong point with which to stand. Book VV Rim says, Reading the more translation, when they describe leaving two of the cannons on the hill, one of them described as unicorned. My assumption is that it means the cannon was spiked, but I wasn't sure. I don't know if other translations use different language. 
I read a biography of Napoleon about two years ago, and the capture of an enemy artillery and descriptions of the number of spiked cannons were always very relevant. Cannons, sorry, or Napoleon's spiking of his own if needed, essentially driving a large metal spike spike into the vent of the cannon to render it useless, so the enemy can't then up their artillery numbers in subsequent fights. Ah. Um, could be. There's a footnote, says uh, Warren Kovofi, in my translation. Yeah, I've got the same one in the PNV. A unicorn is a smooth bored muzzle loading cannon that's tapered towards the mouth. I think if I'm reading it correctly, Andre and Tushin destroyed two out of the four cannons while one was already smashed and the unicorn was left as is. PNV translates them as having limbered the cannons. I'm assuming that means sabotage. No, limbered means putting the wheels on them so that they're able to move them. The limbers are the the, um, the cannons kind of go on a carriage. They've got a special carriage that helps move them around. And when they want to fire the cannons, they have to set them up. They have to take them off. Uh, yeah, so I saw the PNV translation about what a unicorn cannon was. So... I think they left behind one busted cannon and one unicorn um, cannon that wasn't destroyed. Or you could be right about the spiked thing, Book VV Irem, um, because PNV has been known to get a few things wrong. Um, All right, let's keep reading, shall we? Chapter 21, the last chapter of Book 2. Exciting stuff. The wind settled down and black clouds merging with the powder smoke hung low on the horizon over the battlefield. It was getting dark and the glow of the two fires was more apparent now. The cannonade was dying down but the crackle of musketry behind and to the right was getting closer and louder. As soon as Tushin was with his cannons driving around or over the wounded, came out of range of fire and descended in the ravine, he met some of the staff, among them the staff officer and Zerkov, who had been sent to Tushin's battery twice and had failed to reach it both times. They all spoke over one another, giving and conveying orders as to how to proceed, reprimanding and giving him an earful. Tushin didn't have any orders to give and, in fact, was afraid to speak, feeling like he was about to burst into tears at every word without knowing why, and so rode silently behind on his artillery nag. The orders were to abandon the, wo- abandon the wounded, but many of them dragged themselves along after the troops, begging to tag along on the gun carriages. The sexy infantry officer who had rushed out of the wattle shed with Tushin at the start of the battle was laying on Medvedna's carriage with a bullet in his belly. At the bottom of the hill, a pale young hussar holding one lame hand in the other came up to Tushin, asking for a seat. Captain, for God's sake, I've fucked my arm, he said timidly. For God's sake, I can't walk, for God's sake. It was obvious that this cadet had been asking all up and down for a lift and had been refused repeatedly, he asked in a nervous, pitiful voice. Tell them to let me on, for God's sake. Let him on, said Tushin. Chuck a cloak down for him to sit on, lad, he said, addressing his favourite soldier. And where'd that wounded officer go? Wounded officer go. We dropped him off. He died, replied someone. Help him get up. Sit down, good lad, sit down. Chuck the cloak down for him, Antonov. The cadet with the fucked hand was young Rostov. With one hand he held the other. He was white as a ghost and shivering feverishly, his jaw trembling. The 
they helped him onto the onto Metvivna. Metvivna was the name of the cannon, by the way. The gun they'd just removed the dead officer from. The cloak spread under him was soaked in blood, which smeared on his breeches and arm. Wait on, are you wounded, my lad? said Tushin, approaching Metvivna, with Rostov sitting on top of the carriage. No, just a sprain. Then what's all this blood on the carriage? inquired Tushin. It's from the officer, your honour. He stained it, answered the artilleryman, wiping away the blood with his coat sleeve as if apologising for the mess on his gun. With the help of the infantry, they were just barely able to get the guns up the hill, and having reached the village of Gruntersdorf, they stopped. It was so dark now that they couldn't make out the uniforms ten paces ahead, and the firing had started to fade. Suddenly, just off to the right, shouting and firing were heard, close. This was the last French attack, and it was countered by soldiers who were sheltered in the village houses. They rushed full speed out of the village, but Tushin's guns couldn't move, and the artillerymen, Tushin, and the cadet looked at each other in silence, waiting to learn their fate. The crossfire started dying down, and soldiers talking eagerly streamed out of a side street. Not hurt, are you, Petrov? asked one. Nah, mate, we've given them a floggin'. They won't try that shit again, said another. Couldn't see a thing. They were shooting themselves. Couldn't see a thing. Pitch black, mate. Oi, is there anything to drink? The French had been pushed back for the last time, and again and again, in the pitch black, Tushin's guns moved forward to the next place, encased by the humming infantry. In the darkness it seemed like a gloomy river was flowing, murmuring and whispering with talk and the sounds of hoofs and wheels. It was the groans and voices of the wounded that stuck out most of all in the dark night among the general rumble. The gloom that surrounded the army was full with those groans which seemed to merge together with the darkness of the night. After a while, the moving river became restless. Someone rode past on a white horse followed by his suite, saying something or other as he passed. What did he say? Wait, where to? Hold up, was that... Did he say thank you? They questioned eagerly from all sides. The whole mass pressed together closer together and a rumour spread that they'd been ordered to halt. Evidently the people at the front had halted. Everyone stopped, staying where they were in the middle of the muddy road. Fires were lit and people started chatting a little more loudly. Captain Tushin, having given orders to his company, sent a soldier to find a doctor or a dressing station for the injured cadet and took a load off by a bonfire that the soldiers had started on the road. Rostov dragged himself over to the fire too. He wasn't in good nick. He was shaking all over from pain, cold and dampness. He was as drowsy as all get out, could hardly keep his eyes open, but the excruciating pain in his arm kept him awake. He couldn't find a comfortable position for it. His eyes kept closing, then reopening to look at the fire, which seemed very, very red to him, and then at the wimpy little shoulders of Tushin, who was sitting cross-legged like a Turk beside him. He was watching Rostov. He was watching Rostov with sympathy, his big intelligent eyes looking at him and Rostov could see he felt sorry for him and truly wanted to help. Footsteps and voices of the infantry were heard all around. They were walking and driving past and settling down. The sound of voices trotting feet, horse hoofs moving in the mud. The crackle of the fires close and far merged together into one pregnant murmur. It was no longer a dark unseen river as it was before flowing through the gloomy night but now a dark and brooding ocean swelling and gradually subsiding after a storm. Rostov half-watched and listened to everything around him. An infantryman cam, came to the fire, squatted on his heels, held his hands up to the warmth, and turned his face away. 
You don't mind, do you, Your Honour? He asked Tushin. I've lost my company, Your Honour. I don't know what happened. Such shitty luck. Along with the lost soldier, an infantry officer whose cheek was all bandaged up, came up to the fire and asked Tushin to have the guns moved a smidge so a wagon could get past. After he'd gone, two more soldiers rushed to the campfire. They were at each other's throats, having a tug of war over a boot, each of them holding onto it. Oh, you picked it up, did you? Well, how clever of you, one of them shouted hoarsely. Then a thin, pale soldier came to the fire with his neck wrapped up in a blood-stained leg band and angrily asked the artillery company for water. Water, damn it, am I supposed to just die like a dog? He said. Tushin told his men to give the man some water. Then a rather chipper soldier ran up asking for some fire for his infantry. Oh yeah, taste his little hot torch for my fellas. Good luck to you, comrades. Cheers for the fire. We will return it with interest, said he carrying the glowing stick away into the darkness. Next came four soldiers carrying something heavy on a cloak who passed by the fire. One of them tripped. Who the fuck left logs on the road, he snarled. Why are you even carrying him? He's dead. Shut your mouth. And they disappeared into the darkness with the body. How's the arm still sore? Tushin asked Rostov quietly. Yeah. Your Honor, the general wants, the general wants you. He's in the hut here, said a gunner coming up to Tushin. Come on, mate. Tushin got up and walked away from the fire, buttoning his greatcoat and straightening it up. Not far from the campfire that the artillerymen had made in a hut that had been thrown together for him, Prince Bagration sat having dinner, talking to some commanding officers who'd gathered together in his hut. There was the little old man with the half-closed eyes there, gnawing piggily on a mutton bone, and the general, with the squeaky clean service record of 22 years, was red in the face from his glass of vodka and dinner, and the staff officer with the signet ring was there, and Zerkov, looking shiftily at everyone, and Prince Andre, pale, his lips compressed tightly, and his eyes glittering with determination. In the corner of the hut, leaned against the wall of a French standard they had taken, and the accountant with the clueless face was feeling the texture of its flag, shaking his head in wonder possibly because the banner was really interesting to him, but more likely because he was absolutely starving and it was hard to watch everyone eating when there was no place at the table for him. In the next hut there was a French colonel who'd been taken prisoner by the dragoons. Our officers were bustling around him, trying to get a good look. Prince Bagration was taking the time to thank each commander individually and ask them details about the action they saw and the loss they took. The general of the regiment that was inspected in Brunau, was telling the prince how he had withdrawn his men from the wood as soon as the action started, mustered the men who were chopping wood and let the French go past, then with two battalions started a bayonet attack and overwhelmed them. When I saw their first battalion, Your Excellency, and what a shambles they were in, I stopped on the road and thought, I reckon if I let them pass I'll be able to stop them with ranged fire, and so that's what we did. The general had wanted to do this so bad and was so pissed that he hadn't managed to do it in time that he actually believed this little fable of his. And who knows, maybe it did happen. As if anyone could say what did or did not happen in such a clusterfuck. And by the way, Your Excellency, I must let you know, he continued, remembering Dolokhov's conversation with Kutuzov and his last, and his own last conversation with the disgraced soldier. That soldier who was demoted, Dolokhov, I saw with my own eyes he took a French officer prisoner and was particularly impressive out there. 
Yes, I saw the Pavlograd Hussars attacking there, Your Excellency, chimed in Zerkov, looking around guiltily. He hadn't seen fuck all that day, on account of being a massive wimp, but had heard about their attack from an infantry officer. They broke up two squares, Your Excellency. The men around Zerkov smiled at his words, expecting him to make a joke as usual, but noticing that what he was saying redounded the glory of the Russian army and their day's work, they nodded with serious faces, even though they knew Zerkov was full of shit. Prince Bagration turned to the old colonel. Gents, I thank you all. All our men have behaved heroically, infantry, cavalry and artillery. We had to abandon two guns at the centre. What happened there? He asked, searching the group for someone. Prince Bagration didn't bother to ask about the cannons on the left flank. He knew those guns had been abandoned at the very beginning of the action. I think I sent you, didn't I? he asked, turning to the staff officer on duty. One was damaged, answered the staff officer. And the others, well, I can't work it out. I was there the whole time, giving orders and such, and I'd only just left. It was boiling hot, to be honest, he added modestly. Someone chimed in to say that Captain Tushin was off near the village and had already been sent for. Oh, but you were there too, right? said Prince Bagration, addressing Prince André. He was. We only just missed each other, said the staff officer with a smile to Bolkonsky. Unfortunately, I can't say I saw you, said Prince André, shutting him down coldly. The room fell silent. Tushin appeared at the door and made his way in timidly from behind the generals. As he passed the generals, feeling bashful, as he always did when around his superiors, he didn't see the French banner leaning in the corner, and he stumbled over it. A few people laughed. Why was a perfectly good gun abandoned? asked Bagration, frowning, not so much at Captain Tushin, but rather at the bastards who were laughing at him, among whom Zerkov laughed loudest. Only now did the disgrace and guilt settle in for Tushin, in the face of his stern superiors, as he realised he had abandoned two guns to save his own skin. He'd been so hyped that he hadn't thought about it like that until now. The officer's laughing confused him even more. He stood before Bagration with his jaw trembling and was barely able to mutter his response. I don't know, Your Excellency. I, I had no men, Your Excellency. You could have taken some from the covering troops. Tushin could have said that there were no covering troops. That was perfectly true, but he didn't. He was worried that he'd be throwing some other officer under the bus and silently locked his eyes on Bagration as a baffled schoolboy looks at his examiner. The silence went on for ages. Prince Bagration, apparently not wanting to seem too psycho, could think of nothing to say. The others didn't dare to chime in. Prince André looked at Tushin from under his brows and twiddled his fingers nervously. Your Excellency, Prince André burst, breaking the silence abruptly. You were happy to send me to Captain Tushin's battery. I went there and I found the place fucked. Two-thirds of his men and horses taken out, two guns smashed and no support whatsoever. Prince Bagration and Tushin both looked intensely at Bolkonsky, who spoke as if he was about to explode. And if you'll allow me to speak my mind, Your Excellency, he continued, we owe our success today squarely to the action of Tushin's battery and the heroic perseverance of the artillerymen and their captain. And without waiting for a response, Prince Andre got up and left the table. Prince Bagration looked at Tushin. It was clear that he didn't want to appear not to trust Bolkonsky's adamant opinion of him, but also wasn't fully able to credit it. He bent his head and told Tushin that he could go. Prince Andre went out with him. Thank you, 
You saved my ass, mate, said Tushin. Prince Andre looked at him, said nothing, and walked away. He felt real glum and sooky about it. It was all so strange, nothing like what he had hoped for. Who are these people? Why are they here? What do they want? Ah, oh, sorry, there's a break there. I should have paused. It was all so strange, nothing like what he had hoped for. Break. Who are these people? Why are they here? What do they want? And when will this bullshit end? Thought Rostov, watching the shadows move around him. The pain in his arm was getting stronger and stronger. Sleep was becoming unbelievably tempting. Red dots danced around in his vision, and the vibe of the voices and the faces and his own feeling of loneliness merged together with the pain in his arm. It was these bastards, these soldiers, wounded and unwounded. It was them that were crushing, pushing and twisting the sinews and burning the flesh of his sprained arm and shoulder. He closed his eyes to get rid of them. He nodded off for a second, but in that second, countless things appeared to him. His mum and her, and her large white hands. Sonya's bony little shoulders. Natasha's eyes. Her laughter. Denisov's voice and moustache. And Talionin. And all that nonsense that went down with Talionin and Bogdanich. That nonsense was the same thing as this soldier with the harsh and annoying voice. And it was that nonsense and this soldier that were driving not Rostov nuts, pestering his arm, pulling it and pushing and dragging it in one direction. He tried to get away from them, but they wouldn't for even a second let his shoulder move a hair's breadth. It wouldn't hurt, it would be fine if they would just stop pulling, but it was impossible to get rid of them. He opened his eyes and looked up. The black canopy of night was hanging about a foot above the glowing charcoal, Snow was falling, fluttering in that light. Tushin hadn't returned. The doctor hadn't come. He was all alone now, except for a soldier who was in the nude, warming his thin yellow body on the other side of the fire. Nobody gives a shit about me, thought Rostov. There's no one to help me or feel sorry for me. I was at home once, though, happy, strong and loved. He sighed. Tried to, but it was more like a groan. You're all good? Are you hurt? asked the naked soldier waving his shirt over the fire he didn't wait for Rostov's reply but Bru but what? brunette and continued I think I've written the wrong I don't think I meant to write brunette but brunette and continued um Rost uh, a shit ton of men got messed up today bloody terrible Rostov didn't listen to the soldier. He watched the snowflakes fluttering above the fire and remembered Russian winter and being home in his warm, bright home with his fluffy fur coat tearing up the slopes on his sleigh, his healthy body and all the love and affection of his family. Why the heck did I come here then, he wondered. The next day the French backed down. They did not renew their attack and the remaining men of Bagration's detachment were reunited with Kutuzov's army. Alright, there we go. That's the end of book two. Well done, guys. Have your say over at the subreddit, and uh, thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.